0: Hey everyone, and welcome to There and Back Again, I'm Alistair Stevens. In tonight's 58th discussion, we make up for some lost time and the uh, the premature conclusion of last week's podcast by discussing the end of Chapter 3 and all of Chapter 4 of Book 5, The Lord of the Rings, The Muster of Rohan, and The Siege of Gondor. I say all of Chapter 5, but let's be honest, that's, that's somewhat unlikely. I have pulled an infeasible number of slides tonight, so we're probably not going to get through all of it, but that will be just fine, because then next week we can wrap up Chapter 4 alongside the very brief but very wonderful Chapter 5. I am going to spend a lot of time talking about Chapter 5 next week in great, great depth, and then we'll move onward to the Battle of the Pelennor Fields the week after. So that is our plan. That is our layout. I make no promises that we'll make it through everything. If we make it through a dozen of the 21 or 22 slides that I have prepared tonight, if we make it to Pippin's discussion of hope with Gandalf, or even Faramir being dispatched by Denethor back to Osgiliath, then I will feel very happy about the amount of progress that we've made, and if we fall short even of that just a little bit, I think it's going to be just fine. Before we get to all of that, though, big news in the study of Tolkien this week, because a big announcement has just been made. Between last week's session and this week's session, this book, let me switch slides here, was announced. This is the cover to the forthcoming book, The Fall of Gondolin, edited by Christopher Tolkien with art by the incomparable Alan Lee. There just are not enough positive things that one can say about Alan Lee's artwork and his illustrations for these books. So this is coming out in August of this year, which is quite a surprise because it was thought by many, me included, that last year's Baron and Luthien was probably going to be the last new Tolkien book that we would ever see. Christopher Tolkien is currently 93 years old, and after dedicating his life to the Academic disentangling of his father's legacy, I suppose. He notes in the foreword to Baron and Luthien that this is probably going to be the last book that he publishes, but that is not so, because it turns out the whole time he was also working on The Fall of Gondolin. And this is going to be huge and is, of course, tinged with a certain melancholy, because this, like Baron and Luthien before it, is almost certainly the last new Tolkien book that we are ever going to get. The Fall of Gondolin is a fascinating text because it is basically the First complete story that Tolkien wrote in his Legendarium and what would become his stories of Middle-earth. He wrote the draft on the back of sheets of military march music in 1917, framing out one of the most important events in the entire history of Arda. A version of this story, originally by Tolkien entitled Of Tuor and the Fall of Gondolin, was published in Unfinished Tales in 1980 after being renamed Of Tuor and His Coming to Gondolin because the story was as the title of the volume suggests, woefully unfinished. Uh, the Original 1917 text would later be published as a part of the Book of Lost Tales in 1983, but in this new book, Christopher Tolkien does what he has done with so many of the fragments of his father's work. He has unified them into a thoughtful and respectful and detailed, cohesive whole. The Fall of Gondolin tells the story of the founding of the elvish city of Gondolin against the depredations of Morgoth of its 500-year history, of the love of the wicked elf Maeglin for his cousin Idril, of the coming of the hero of Tuor with the warning from Ulmo about the, the host of Morgoth, the betrayal of Maeglin following the marriage of Tuor and Idril, and the coming of that aforementioned army of darkness, uh, including Balrogs and dragons, to the hidden city. Gondolin's fall is marked as the greatest defeat ever suffered by the forces of light in Middle-earth. It is basically the worst thing that has ever happened. And now we are going to get the full and unabridged story. And I tell you what, I can't wait for it, even though I am saddened and touched by the fact that it is going to be necessarily punctuative, It is necessarily going to be something of a period, something perhaps of an exclamation point at the end of Tolkien's publishing history. So the Fall of Gondolin comes out in August of this year. Stay tuned. Stay tuned for more information on that when it is finally released. Let me... Uh... Oh, actually, before we get into it tonight, Varig of Khand asked a really fascinating question that I'm just going to call up now. I'm going to do a quick question answer before we get into the actual session tonight. And Variag asks, why would Morgoth name his mace, and thus Sauron's battering ram, grond, a cinder word? Or perhaps the etymology is a retroactive etymology, a retet. Why not use his black speech? Uh, this is relating to something that we're probably not going to get a chance to discuss. In fact, uh, grond the great uh, wolf's head, uh, grond actually in this sense, meaning wolf's head in in, kind of, right? You, you have to go through some... You have to jump through some etymological hoops in order to make that happen. But Grond, the wolf's head battering ram that takes down the doors of Minas itself, is named for Morgoth's mace. And... I'm answering this question, I suppose, because honestly, I just never thought of it. I just never wondered why this is the case. And thinking about it, I suppose, I I don't have a definitive answer, but I suppose the answer lies not in Sindarin, but rather in Quenya. When the Valar and the Maiar came into Middle-earth, they learned Quenya to talk to the elves, because elves could not or would not learn the native language of the Valar and the Maiar that is Valarin. So I think that Morgoth choosing a Quenya name for his weapon, for the, the great mace with which he uh, with which he battles Fingolfin, um, I think that choosing the Quenya word for that weapon leans into one of the things that we associate with the naming of weapons, right? We talked about this previously when we're talking about Anderil, Flame of the West. Why do we name weapons in the fantasy tradition? Why do we specifically name weapons in the Tolkienian tradition? Well, one of the elements that we most closely associate with named weapons is simply intimidation. A named weapon is cool a named weapon is is something to instill fear in the hearts of one's enemies. And I love the idea of Morgoth pulling this, this Quenya word so that his foes, so that his opponents will simply recognize the word and know what it means. The word grand actually in Quenya just means rough piece of wood or, or is descended from the, the Quenya runda, meaning rough piece of wood. In Sindarin, the name means very weighty and ponderous. So it is an accurate name for the wolf's head battering ram that takes down the gates of Minas Tirith. But I like the idea that it's tying back to this Oh, this, this mace that I'm using? Yeah, this is a rough piece of wood. This is a club that I'm going to use to beat you to death. That seems to be part, at least, of Morgoth's intent. That may just be my speculation, but I'm pretty happy with that explanation. With all of that said, then, let's get into, yes, as he also says, a really big and heavy stick. Orcrist, Foehammer, Sting, you know what those mean, says Nikki. Absolutely, right? That That's such a huge part. Even, even Glamdring, you know, Foehammer is, is used beautifully and, and almost... Almost uh, symbolically, in a very specific way, like almost metonymically, to indicate not just the weapon itself, but the force of will behind the weapon. If you wield Glamdring, then if you wield Orcrist, if you wield, if you wield, excuse me, Grand, then you are. Tipping your hand somewhat to your injurious intent in the, uh, in the course of the coming battle. So with all of that said, and a momentary distraction allayed, let's get into our reading tonight with picking up, in fact, from the, uh, the slide which killed last week's session. This is uh, Mary's experience of the journey here, a couple of slides into chapter three, the muster of Rohan. He was very tired, for though they had ridden slowly, they had ridden with very little rest. Half an hour for nearly three, uh, sorry. Hour after hour, for nearly three weary days, he had jogged up and down, over passes and through long dales and across many streams. Sometimes where the way was broader, he had ridden at the king's side, not noticing that many of the riders smiled to see the two together, the hobbit on his shaggy grey pony and the lord of Rohan on his great white horse. Then he had talked to Théoden, telling him about his home and the doings of shire folk, or listening in turn to Tales of the Mark and its mighty man of old. But most of the time, especially on this last day, Mary had ridden by himself just behind the king, saying nothing, and trying to understand the slow, sonorous speech of Rohan that he heard the men behind him using. It was a language in which there seemed to be many words that he knew, though spoken more richly and strongly than in the shire, yet he could not piece the words together. At times, some writer would lift up his clear voice in stirring song, and Mary felt his heart leap, though he did not know what it was about. All the same, he had been lonely, and never more so now than now at day's end. He wondered where in all this strange world Pippin had got to and what would become of Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli, then suddenly like a cold touch on his heart, he thought of Frodo and Sam. I'm forgetting them, he said to himself reproachfully, and yet they are more important than all the rest of us, and I came to help them, but now they must be hundreds of miles away if they are still alive. He shivered. There's so much here to love. There's so much here to adore and so much to unpack. Mary's proximity to the king, of course, you'll remember that Mary did not want to be left behind like a piece of baggage. He did not want to be an incidental part of this ongoing story. He wanted to play a role. He wanted to be present in the rousing of Rohan and the riding to war. He wanted to well, for want of a better and perhaps more heroic word, he wanted to, well, though not an inappropriately hobbitish word, right? He wanted to contribute. He wanted to be present. But here, even in the midst of this this army marching to war, he isn't present. He isn't necessary. Sometimes he can talk with Theoden, but you'll note that when he talks to Theoden, he tells him about the doings of Shire folk, which couldn't possibly be relevant, or listening in turn to Tales of the Mark and its mighty men of old. Fascinating stuff, and we know that stories are valuable, but not immediately contributive in that sense. But most of the time, especially on the last day, Merry had ridden by himself just behind the king, saying nothing and trying to understand the slow, sonorous speech of Rohan that he heard the men behind him using. This is... Absolutely, playing into uh, into Professor Tolkien's love of linguistics, right? Um, Shire speech, Westron, the common tongue, is derived in part, at least in incomplete part, from the Rohiric languages and from Gondorian Sindarin and from many other languages in many other parts of the world. As Rohirric, uh, as the Rohiric language itself, of course, is derived in part from the language of the men of the North. We know that they have bifurcated that linguistic tradition. We know that the language of the Rohirrim is unique at this point, but it's not wholly unique. And he is able to identify, well, in a sense, the greatest power of language. He can't identify the words. He recognizes he thinks some of them, though they are pronounced more fully and roundly. Here there is a a purity to the use of language that he hasn't encountered back in the Shire. We might even speculate where we move to do so that that purity stands at odds with the kind of civil and courteous discourse that we get back in the Shire, right? The language of the Shire has been softened. It has been smoothed. The edges have been knocked off it, and in that process, it has lost some of its greatest grandeur. It has lost some of its its greatest power. But nonetheless, the power of this language is such that it can still move, Mary. When voices are raised in song in the rank behind him, he can still be moved by it, even though he doesn't understand the words. This power of of sound and of utterance and of word, and obviously, of course, the power, too, of song, the ability of song to transcend a literal meaning, in the sense that that here, even if Mary could understand the words, he wouldn't necessarily have sufficient context to derive the fullest meaning from the Rohirik songs, but he doesn't even understand the words. So even devoid of of that that connotative, that, that denotative meaning, excuse me, it still has a kind of connotative musicality. He is still able to be moved by this song, even though he doesn't understand it. And then we get the transition here into reflection. All the same, he had been lonely and never, never more so than now at the day's end. He wondered where in all this strange world Pippin had got to and what would become of Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli, his most recent companions, of course. Then suddenly, like a cold touch on his heart, he thought of Frodo and Sam. I am forgetting them, he said to himself reproachfully. Which speaks, I think, to this notion that we have of stories and storytelling. Mary has found himself in a very different story. And there is, I think, a pretty strong argument that, in fact, Mary and Pippin were never in the same story as Frodo and Sam. That Mary and Pippin, their story ran alongside Frodo and Sam's. But it was never going to well, never going to end in the same way or at the same place. It was never going to carry the same kind of emotional texture and resonance as Frodo and Sam's story. Not a lesser emotional resonance, but just a different emotional resonance. They are in a war story in a way that Frodo and Sam, despite the challenges that they are currently facing, are just not. They are in an older fairy tale, you know, wrought story of heroism kind of story. It's a very different narrative experience. And Merry is now finding himself pulled away from that story, acknowledging the gulf now between him and Frodo and Sam, and also, to a lesser extent, the gulf between him and Pippin, who was in, again, a very different kind of story, and Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli, who were in a different kind of story. Aragorn's story, Pippin's story, those are still pretty close to Merry's story, right? Those are still pretty close to his experience, and we're going to unify those stories really quite beautifully in the pages to come, but Frodo and Sam are doing something else, which for me, shines a light on a a pale gleam, if you will, if I can borrow that phrase from Tolkien. Um, It shines a light on the uniquity and the power of the story in which Frodo and Sam find themselves. This heartsick longing that Merry feels in this moment, this loneliness, as it says in the passage here. He's not just wondering, right? He's not just kicking back on his pony. Well, these hills are pretty nice. Saw a lot of streams, saw a lot of forests, saw a lot of mountain sides. This is um okay, pretty good. Chatted to the king. Never thought I'd do that. It's fine. I mean, you know, no other hobbit has ever managed to just sit and hang out with the, the king of Rohan, so uh that's pretty good. But um hey, I wonder what's happened to Pippin. I wonder what's happened to Aragorn, I wonder what's happened to Frodo. No, it's it's loneliness. It's Mary recognizing that he is not integrated into this community, that for all of his desire to serve. He just isn't a part of it. He has not been caught up in the undertow of the story of the Rohirrim in the way that the Rohirric forces naturally are. The men of the Mark are born into the story and are swept along by the tide of history, and Mary is still somewhat at odds, somewhat on the outs. That is going to be, well, in some sense just acknowledged and in some sense compounded in very short order. We must move on, though, to the meeting of Eowyn and Theoden. "'As they drew near, Mary saw that the rider was a woman "'with long braided hair gleaming in the twilight, "'yet she wore a helm and was clad to the waist "'like a warrior and girded with a sword. "'Hail, Lord of the Mark!' she cried. "'My heart is glad at your returning.' "'And you, Eowyn,' said Théoden, "'is all well with you?' "'All is well,' she answered.' Yet it seemed to Mary that her voice belied her, and he would have thought that she had been weeping, if that could be believed of one so stern a face. All is well. It was a weary road for the people to take, torn suddenly from their homes. There were hard words, for it is a lo- for it is long since war has driven us from the green fields, but there have been no evil deeds. All is now ordered, as you see, and your lodging is prepared for you, for I have had full tidings of you and know the hour of your coming. So Aragorn has come then, said Eomer. Is he still here? No, he is gone, said Eowyn, turning away and looking at the mountains dark against the east and south. Whither did he go? Asked Aylmer. I do not know, she answered. He came at night and rode away yester morning ere the sun had climbed over the mountain tops. He is gone. You are grieved, daughter," said Theowin. "What has happened? Tell me. Did he speak of that road? He pointed away along the darkening lines of stone toward the Dwimmerberg, the paths of the dead. Yes, Lord," said Eowyn. "and he has passed into the shadow from which none have returned. I could not dissuade him. He is gone. Then our paths are sundered," said Aylmer. "He is lost. We must ride without him, and our hope dwindles." Is Eowyn withholding here from her king, from her, I suppose, adoptive father? Here you'll note that Theoden refers to her as daughter, even though that she is his niece. This is a symbol of her, her primacy in the community of Edoras here, in the, the, the civilian community of Rohan, if you like. Is she withholding from him when she tells him that she doesn't know where Aragorn went? Whither did he go? asked Eomer. I do not know, she answered. He came at night and rode away yestermorn ere the sun had climbed over the mountaintops. He is gone. Is she just not saying what happened to Aragorn? Is she trying to protect Theoden and Eomer and the men of Rohan from the knowledge that, you know, the greatest sword in the West has now fallen into darkness? Or is she acknowledging the truth that she doesn't now know where he is. She knows that he went into the paths of the dead, but we also know what happens when people go into the paths of the dead. Now she does not know whether he has gone. She doesn't know where Aragorn is anymore because no one can know what happens to you after your death. Certainly Aomer jumps to that. Then our pods are sundered, said Aomer. He is lost. We must ride without him, and our hope dwindles. It's not, oh okay, well, maybe we'll catch up at Gondor. Maybe um, he probably had a plan, right? He, probably, he was probably thinking something. No, the Paths of the Dead are absolutely sacred in the most negative way, I suppose, for the Rohirrim. To enter the Paths of the Dead is to die. That is the only thing that happens to people who go in. And now Aragorn has done it, and the Grey Company has done it, and Gimli and Legolas have done it, and that's it. Eowyn doesn't know where Aragorn is now because presumably Aragorn does not yet breathe. He does not yet walk the face of the earth. This is a dark day for the men of Rohan. I do love, too, the uh, all is well, she answered, yet it seemed to Mary that her voice belied her. And he would have thought that she had been weeping if that could be believed of one of so stern a face. Mary's ability to see through the facade, to... To recognize the emotional truth of Eowyn in this moment, as he has recognized emotional truths before, right? To be so emotionally and intimately connected to Theoden King, to Eomer, to Eowyn at this point. All of this is in recognition of Mary's capacity for empathy and for... Well, he probably would bulk at the use of this word, right? But humanity for, for a recognition. a uh, uh, Sympathetic and pitying uh, connection with those around him. You'll remember that the distinction between sympathy and pity is that sympathy recognizes a, a fellow feeling and a shared experience. Oh, I have been where you are, and thus I know that it sucks. Whereas pity stands at one remove. And pity says, I have never been where you are, but it sucks, right? It's It's that connection across a boundary, across a barrier, without the the intimacy of that shared experience. And I think that Mary is both capable here of, of sympathy and of pity in the Gandalfian sense. Dwemerberg here is a Rohirric word that just means haunted mountain, right? It's it's just very, very bad. The Dwemerberg is the uh, the head of the pass of Harrodale that runs down out of the mountains toward Edoras. We get a lot of Rohirric proper nouns in this chapter, and I'm going to parse many of them, though not assuredly all of them. But yes, that's what that's what the Dwemerberg is. It just means haunted mountain. At this point, uh, or shortly after this, in fact, when Eowyn is talking about Aragorn, she describes him as being fey, which is going to be a very significant word as we move through the next few chapters. In fact, it hasn't appeared in The Lord of the Rings until fairly recently, and most of its appearances are going to be in the next three chapters, in fact. Uh, she says, "'Greatly changed he seemed to me since I saw him at the king's house,' said Aowen, "'Grimmer, older, fey I, thought, uh, fey. I thought him, like one whom the dead call.'" Fae um, is anchored in the, oldish, the Old English word feige, uh, which is uh, Teutonic, is, is G- of Germanic origin when it comes into Old English, and it means simply fated to die soon. But in English, it means either fated to die or believing that one is fated to die. To be fay, particularly in the Anglo-Saxon tradition, is to be possessed of that reckless courage, that, that reckless... Impetuous ability to take action, desire to take action, that, that that fierce hunger for action, because you know that you are going to die. That is what Eowyn believes of Aragorn at this moment. That he is taking reckless, heedless action because he believes that he is going to die. And Fae, as I say, is terribly, terribly significant. Fae was first used in the Lord of the Rings back in Shelob's Lair in Book Four when, well the narration, but really Sam, thinks that Frodo looks fey in that moment. It will be used in the next chapter by Pippin to describe Denethor, it will be used to describe Theoden in the following chapter, and then it will be used to describe Eomer during the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. We are facing a lot of people in the next few chapters who believe that they are fated to die, who believe that that death is upon them and thus this is their last chance to win glory, to seek release, to to do whatever it is that you do when you believe that death is upon you. And of course, Fae in that sense is connected magically to the notion of, of this, this otherworldly fairy-like essence, right? To be Fae is to be Touched by fate—it's specifically touched by fate and touched by by magic, if you like—to be granted the knowledge of one's own imminent death. That's the original usage, but since then it expanded out to encompass this—to be—to be be touched by magic in the more general sense. Let's um, yeah. I imagine fey is a common thing at the end of the world. Says Jackie. Yes, yes. A lot of people. A lot of people feeling pretty pretty fay right now. Um. Yeah, as Karen points out, a lot of people get called Fae in this section of the book. It seems to have a brief vogue in JRRT's prose. Um, I don't think it's necessarily that that it popped up on his Word of Day calendar while he was writing this part of The Return of the King, and he just leaned into it. It's that it is a very powerful Anglo-Saxon concept, and we have never faced death before as we face death now, and even its usage here. Eowyn is wrong, of course. Aragorn, well, hmm, was Aragorn Fae. No, I don't believe that he was. I don't believe that he was. And of course, she doesn't say that he was. She says that he seemed Faye. Faye, I thought him like one whom the dead call. She capitalizes, or or the the narrative voice capitalizes, dead there too, which is really interesting and of course uh, slightly ironic there in that usage. But yes, these these men, these valiant men of Gondor, these valiant men of Rohan, these men are going to be facing death in the very near future. I'm using men there, of course. calling this out because we're going to be talking about this in just a couple of slides time. And with regard to last week's discussion, I'm using men here in the Tolkienian mythic sense rather than in the uh, modern gendered sense. Let's move onward to our, uh, to our uh, messenger from Condor James saying in the chat here, if fey, you call it. Yes, I mean, not, not that, right? Yes. He sank on one knee and presented the arrow to Theoden. "'Hail, lord of the Rohirrim, friend of Gondor!' he said. Here gone I am, errand runner of Denethor, who bring you this token of war. "'Gondor is in great need. "'Often the Rohirrim evaded us. "'But now the lord Denethor asks for all your strength and all your speed, "'lest Gondor fall at last.' "'The red arrow,' said Théoden, holding it, "'as one who receives a summons long expected and yet dreadful when it comes.' "'His hand trembled. "'The red arrow has not been seen in the mark in all my years. "'Has it indeed come to that?' "'And what does the Lord Denethor reckon that all my strength and all my speed may be?' "'That is best known to yourself, Lord,' said Hirgon. "'But ere long it may well come to pass that Minas Tirith is surrounded, "'and unless you have the strength to break a siege of many powers, "'the Lord Denethor bids me to say that he judges that the strong arms of the Rohirrim "'would be better within his walls than without. "'But he knows that we are a people who fight rather upon horseback and in the open than we are, all- "'and that we are also a scattered people, "'and time is needed for the gathering of our riders.' Is it not true, Hurgon, that the Lord of Minas Tirith knows more than he sets in this message? For we are already at war, as you may have seen, and you do not find us all unprepared. Gandalf the Grey has been among us, and even now we are mustering for battle in the east. But he knows that we are a people who fight rather upon horseback and in the open, and that we are also a scattered people and time is needed for a gathering of our riders. Is it not true, Hurgon, that the Lord of Minas Tirith knows more than he sets in this message? Look at the message that Hirgon carries here to Theoden. Hyrgon I am, errant rider of Denethor who brings you this token of war. Gondor is in great need. Often the Rohirrim have aided us, but now the Lord Denethor asks for all your strength and all your speed, lest Gondor fall at last. But ere long it may well come to pass that Minas Tirith is surrounded, and unless you have the strength to break a siege of many powers, the Lord Denethor bids me to say that he judges that the strong arms of the Rohirrim would be better within his walls than without. Yeah. Absolutely. Actually, Denethor knows a lot more than he is passing on to Theoden. But that, I think, is not because Denethor is withholding Look at the formulation of the attributed dialogue in that first paragraph there, right? We've been talking a lot in our discussion of The Return of the King about register, about the way that we will elevate register into formal language when we need to, when it is most justified by the power of the moment or by the formal courtesy displayed between people of differing ranks, right? We've had that uh, had that discussion intermittently through the pages of The Return of the King thus far. That's how I read Hirgon's words. Hail, Lord of the Rehirim, friend of Gondor! That seems like a formal declaration, doesn't it? Is that how you're going to introduce yourself to Theoden? Hey, Theoden King, buddy of Gondor. Nice to see you. How are you doing? How's the kids? Family? doing? Oh, sorry, your son. Sorry, probably shouldn't have mentioned that. Here gone I am. And you'll note there, too, that archaic uh, syntactical pattern, right? Here gone I am, errand rider of Denethor, who bring you this token of war that is decidedly archaic and thus may indicate that this is not some extemporaneous speechifying from here gone here, this is the message that he was charged to carry. Gondor is in great need. Often the Rahirim have aided us, but now the Lord Denethor asks for all your strength and all your speed, lest Gondor fall at last. And Theoden recognizes this, right? He recognizes the symbol of the red arrow. The red arrow, the red arrow has not been seen in the mark for all my years. Has it indeed come to that? And what does the Lord Denethor reckon that all my strength and all my speed may be? Okay, formal languages, the, the red arrow. Yes, I see it. I acknowledge it. I know what this means. The red arrow, clearly a symbol of of summoning. This is a call to arms from Gondor to, his al- uh, to its allies in the Northwest, right? The red arrow signifies an urgent need, the most urgent need, presumably. That's why Theoden notes, has it come to this? Is this really where we are? Hell, a yellow arrow, right? Like a green arrow, that would have been okay. That means, come pretty quick, we're probably going to be able to handle it, but we could really use your help and, you know, bring like sandwiches, because it's going to be a long morning's battle fighting off the orcs from Osgiliath once more. No, this is the red arrow. This is pretty serious stuff. So then, Hyrgon continues, that is best known to yourself, lord. I'm not going to speculate. That would be wildly inappropriate, in fact, for me, a messenger from Denethor, to speculate about the power and stature of the Men of the Mark? No, 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 I am not going to get drawn into that. That is best known to yourself, Lord, but ere long it may it may well come to pass that Minas Tirith is surrounded, and unless you have the strength to break a siege of many powers, the Lord Denethor bids me to say that he judges that the strong arms of the Rohirrim would be better within his walls than without, to which Theoden responds very naturally, have you seen us? Do you know the whole deal of the Men of Rohan? The men of the Mark, the Rohirrim, look behind me. All of these guys, do you see how they are all on horses and many of them are named after or have the word horse in their names, in fact? We fight on horses. We fight on the open field. If Denethor is summoning us with all haste and if he is telling us that there is going to be a siege soon around Gondor he knows that we are not going to be able to lift the siege. He is trying to get more men inside the walls of Minas Tirith before the siege falls. It is not just our strength. This is why the emphasis is being put here on speed. We are going to serve not in our greatest capacity, not even necessarily as allies, not in the true combining of the Gondorian spirit and the Rohiric spirit, right? That's not what this is going to be. You just need more men inside of Minas Tirith. And we can do that. I mean, by implication, Theoden's saying, okay, look, we're, we're going to come. We've been summoned to war. We're already riding to war. For we are already at war, as you may have seen, and you do not find us all unprepared. Gandalf the Grey has been among us. And even now we are mustering for battle in the east. One possible interpretation of this is that Gandalf the Grey is just a figure of, of dire portent, right? Gandalf has been here. So actually we know how bad things are. Thank you, Hyrgon. I don't think that that is Theoden's intent, though. I think Theoden is reading the situation perfectly. Gandalf has been here. Gandalf knows what we have accomplished. Therefore, Denethor knows what we have accomplished. Gandalf knows about the forces arrayed before us. Therefore, Denethor knows about the forces arrayed before us. Gandalf knows the situation, and he is now presumably giving wise counsel to your steward back there in Minas Tirith. This exchange is beautifully formal and beautifully realized and also speaks to that that formal alliance that exists between Gondor and Rohan. You can't, as a king or as a steward, right, you can't simply summon the forces of another king. It would be discourteous of Denethor to say, Minas Tirith is on the brink of of destruction and you have to come and save us. That's not how this works. No, you are called. Hail, Lord of the Rohirrim, friend of Gondor. Often the Rohirrim have aided us. And now the Lord Denethor asks for all your strength and all your speed, lest Gondor fall at last. He is emphasizing this fight with as much as as much power as he possibly can in order to communicate to Theoden, while still maintaining this courteous frame, how important it is that he hurry. And it is more important that he hurry than that he bring the entire massed rank of Rohirrim behind him, right? We don't need every single man of the mark, and we don't need you on your best horses. We need people who can wield a sword within the walls of Minas Tirith. Speed is of the essence here, not just strength." From here, yes, asks is totally in air quotes here, says Becca. Well, I mean, it, it kind of is, right? It, it kind of is, but we're still respecting the formal language. We're still respecting the courtesy that is due to Theoden as king of the mark here. Even Aragorn himself could not summon Theoden, right? He couldn't just, just bark a, a command at Theoden and expect it to be followed. Within the bounds of Rohan, and even as the head of his army within the bounds of Gondor, Theoden is a king. And Theoden, crucially... Is therefore of. Well, I wanted to say higher rank, and that is true in a way. He is of higher rank than Denethor, in that Denethor is the steward of the absent king, and Theoden is the real deal. For all the might of Gondor, and for all the relative insufficiency of Rohan, it is still true that Theoden outranks Denethor. But it's not just about that. That higher rank, Denethor's power is more pure. Denethor is the king. He embodies Rohan. He is Rohan in a way that Denethor stands in for he who is Gondor, but will never quite be that. More on Denethor, of course, as we move forward. Theoden, though, takes this opportunity to uh, tell Merry that things are not going to work out the way that the hobbit had planned. The king turned to Merry. I am going to war, Master Mariadoc, he said. In a little while, I shall take the road. I release you from my service, but not from my friendship. You shall abide here, and if you will, you shall serve the Lady Eowyn, who will govern the folk in my stead. But, but, Lord, Mary stammered, I offered you my sword. I do not want to be parted from you like this Theoden king. And as all my friends have gone to the battle, I should be ashamed to stay behind. But we ride on horses, tall and swift, said Theoden, and great though your heart be, you cannot ride on such beasts. Then tie me on the back of one, or let me hang on a stirrup or something, said Mary. It is a long way to run, but run I shall if I cannot ride, even if I wear my feet off and arrive weeks too late. Theoden smiled. "'Rather than that, I would bear you with me on Snowmane,' he said. "'But at the least you shall ride with me to Edoras and look on Methaceld, for that way I shall go. "'So far Stibber can bear you. The great race will not begin till we reach the plains.' "'Then Eowyn rose up. "'Come now, Mariadoc,' she said. "'I will show you the gear that I have prepared for you.' "'They went out together. "'This request only did Aragorn make to me,' said Eowyn as they passed among the tents, "'that you should be armed for battle. "'I have granted it as I could, for my heart tells me that you will need such gear ere the end.' Now she led Mary to a booth among the lodges of the king's guard, and there an armorer brought out to her a small helm and a round shield and other gear. No mail we have to fit you, said Eowyn, nor any time for the foraging of such a hauberk, but here is also a stout jerkin of leather, a belt and a knife, a sword you have. Mary bowed, and the lady showed him the shield, which was like the shield that had been given to Gimli, and it bore on at the device of the white horse. Take all these things, she said, and bear them to good fortune. Farewell now, Master Mariatic, yet maybe we shall meet again, you and I. Why does Theoden want Mary to stay behind? Well, explicitly, it is because his horse, Stibba, which is the old English word that just means stubby, right? <laughs> Uh, Mary's Pippin, the, uh, Mary's Pippin, excuse me, Mary's pony, the pony that has, has carried him so faithfully through the hills here on the southern flank of Rohan is just called Stubby the Pony, which I actually rather like quite a lot. So he is released. You'll note how formal and careful this is to, this is to here. In a little while I shall take the road. I release you from my service, but not from my friendship. That is it, by the way. That is the moment where Mary is no longer sworn under oath to Theoden King. That is it. I release you from my service is all that is required. That is the discharging of Mary's oath, not the breaking of Mary's oath or the casting aside of Mary's oath, but the fulfillment, if you like, of of Mary's oath. I release you from my service, but not from my friendship. You should stay here. You should stay here where it is is relatively safe and you should serve Lady Eowyn. And Mary uh, objects to that strenuously. I offered you my sword. I do not want to be parted from you like this, Theoden King. And as all my friends have gone to the battle, I should be ashamed to stay behind. I should be ashamed, says a hobbit, not to take part in this well, adventure in the broadest sense, right? Not to take part in this battle, not to face these dangers, not to stand with my friends. I should be ashamed if I were left behind. What is this that has awoken in the breast of Mary? What is it that that has has arisen within the hearts of these hobbits? Mary has witnessed so much and, you know, a, a lot is made... I think, by some readers of The Lord of the Rings of the Entish Draft, right? You'll remember that both Merry and Pippin drank of the draft that was given to them by Treebeard back in Fangorn Forest, and that that has enkindled within them some transformation, that they have become greater because of the application of the Entish Draft, because of the the consummation, the taking into their bodies of the Entish Draft, and thus they have been rendered in more heroic terms. And I can't refute the logic of that entirely, and certainly it is a point of... of Direct intervention, it is one of the few points in Mary's story and in Pippin's story too, where they experience something that is completely without the bounds of their experience and which could have long-lasting implications, but I've never been entirely satisfied with it. I've never been entirely satisfied with that notion of a entis deus ex machina, right? The thing that we need to turn Pippin and Mary into what they need to be for the rest of the story to play out in satisfactory fashion is a magic potion, like they are Asterix the Gaul, right? That's not what's happening here, to my mind. that's not That doesn't stand up to my scrutiny of this text and to my, my reading of Mary's character and of Pippin's character, of course, because they are of the generation of hobbits that came up after Bilbo. They know Bilbo's stories. They have grown up hearing about adventures and hearing about the wider world and The courage that lies within the heart of the Hobbit has been kindled here in Merry and in Pippin. Reinforced, challenged too, but reinforced by their long adventures, by the bonds of of loyalty and companionship that they feel to each other, to Frodo and Sam, to Aragorn, to Legolas, to Gimli, to the fellowship in general, right? As Pippin obviously felt toward Boromir, even after after Boromir's death, when, when Pippin finally arrives at Minas Tirith. These bonds are, it seems to me, hobbitish. They are true to the heart of the hobbit. And Mary here desires not to be left behind, not just to be cast aside, not to be rendered unimportant, as could be interpreted from his explanation uh, earlier in this chapter, right, when he's talking about accompanying Theoden anyway. It's not just that he he doesn't want to be left behind like a piece of baggage, it's also that he wants to serve, that he wants to fulfill his purpose, that he wants to stand with his friends, lest he be ashamed, lest he be lest he lose some important and definitive and, and eternal part of himself, right? I'm thinking, obviously, of, uh, of Cassio from Othello here, right? My reputation, my reputation. And obviously, Mary isn't casting it in quite those terms. But he is every bit as fierce as Cassio is in that scene. But we ride on horses tall and swift and and great though your heart be, you cannot ride on such beasts. Theoden here letting him down easy. Ah, Mary, you're awesome. And I don't think that great though your heart be is in any way untrue or or ironic or disingenuous from Theoden there. I think he recognizes the greatness of Mary's heart and the greatness of Mary's... Well, uh, potential heroic stature, if not his actual physical stature, I suppose. Then tie me to the back of one or let me hang on a stirrup or something, said Mary. It's a long way to run, but run I shall if I cannot ride, even if I wear my feet off and arrive weeks too late. And Theoden smiles. Rather than that, I would bear you with me on snowman. Rather than that instance. If that's where we are, Mary, then I will bear you on my horse. No one else will ride the horse of the king but you, Mary." But we don't have to do this right now. You can come with me to Edoras, you can come with me to Methasel, the the, the the golden hall of the king of Rohan, you can come with me there, and then we'll see, then we'll, then we'll part. The great race will not begin until we reach the plains. Then Eowyn intervenes and leads Merry away. I will show you the gear that I have prepared for you. This request only did Aragorn make to me, said Eowyn as they passed among the tents, that you should be armed for battle. I have granted it as I could, for my heart tells me you will need such gear ere the end." Is this another moment of Aragorn's prophetic vision? Okay, first off, do we imagine that Aragorn actually gave this instruction to Eowyn? Do we think that this is actually a thing that happened? Yes, I'm actually pretty confident. I don't think that she would use his name. I think that she wouldn't... She wouldn't impugn the name of Aragorn with dishonesty at this point, right? I think that Aragorn absolutely gave her instruction, and I think that we have seen here a glimpse of Aragorn's prophetic vision again. Why on earth would Aragorn assume that Mary is going to face battle? Which, spoilers, Mary is absolutely going to do, right? Because Aragorn has had a glimpse of what is to come, has had a, a nudge, has heard an echo of that ancient music, and instructs Eowyn to do what is necessary so that fate can unfold as it must. Which... Carries with it some implications about Aragorn's assessment of Eowyn II, by the way, which we'll also get to in due course. So Merry is armoured, not in a hauberk, not in, in in chain or in plate, but rather a stout jerkin of leather, a belt and a knife, a sword you have, and then he takes up the shield. He takes up the shield with the white horse device, the white, hor- uh, white horse crest, the crest of the riders of Rohan here. Merry now girded and armoured in the manner of his lord, in the manner of Theoden, though he has technically been released from his service at this point. More on uh, Mary as we go as we go forward. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Rayla Lynn saying Bilbo has taken root in Mary. He he's also that little brother that wants to play too in this scene. But being a short girl, I get the instinct of not wanting to be uh, condescended to. Yes, there's certainly that too. I, I think there is an element of that, but. We've seen hobbits in the past demur, right? We kind of saw Pippin demur. Man, I am no man. I am a hobbit, right? But then moments later in the passage of the text, he's playing with Burgil and telling Burgil about how he's never yet been stood on his head and how, you know, the the hobbits are a wily and wicked lot. There is something that has awoken in the hearts of Merry and Pippin. And this, I think, is is why some readers of this book are inclined to... Credit. I was going to say blame, but I think credit is a more appropriate word. Credit the draft with this rousing of heroism within their breast. I'm less inspired by that than I am by the great deeds that they've seen, the challenges that they've overcome, the, the events that they have witnessed. I think that Mary and Pippin have been elevated very organically, not by the simple drinking of a potion, but rather by the taking into themselves of narrative, the taking into themselves of story and the unlocking within their chests of something which presumably the hobbits weren't always stay-at-home folk, right? Because the Shire has not been populated that long. The hobbits crossed the Misty Mountains and found their way west through Eriador to the Shire. So presumably, at some point, hobbits were bold and were adventurous and, and were willing to travel and explore the world and were a greater part of the world, in small number, admittedly, in small stature, of course, but they were willing to do it nonetheless. And there still seems to beat the heart of Bullroar Took in, in, in the breast of, of Marietta Brandybuck and uh, in, in Peregrine Took, too. So Mary is now girded and armored in the manner of a writer of Rohan. And we ride out and we get the song of Rohan. I talked a little last time about Anglo-Saxon poetry and how wonderful it is. And here we are. On down the grey road they went beside the snowburn rushing on its stones, through the hamlets of Underharrow and Upborne, where many sad faces of women looked out from dark doors. And so without horn or harp or music of men's voices, the great ride into the east began, with which the songs of Rohan were busy for many long lives of men thereafter. From dark Dunharrow in the dim morning with Thane and Captain Rothengel's son, to Edoras he came, the ancient halls of the Mark Wardens mist enshrouded golden timbers were in gloom mantled farewell he bade to his free people hearth and high seat and the hallowed places where long he had feasted ere the light faded, forth rode the king, fear behind him, fate before him fealty kept he, oaths he had taken all fulfilled them, forth rode Théoden, five nights and days east and onward rode the Erlingus through Fold and Fenmarch and the Phidian Wood six thousand spears to sun landing Mundberg the mighty under Minduluun seeking city in the south kingdom, foe beleaguered, fire and circled droomed, drove them on darkness took them horse and horsemen hoofbeats afar sank into silence so the songs tell us it was indeed in deepening gloom that the king came to Ederas, although it was by then but noon by the hour there he halted only a short while and strengthened his host by some three score of riders that came late to the weapon take now having eaten he made ready to set out again and he wished his esquire a kindly farewell but mary begged for the last time not to be parted from him so they ride out, they ride back to Edoras. They ride out from beneath the shadow of the Dwimmerberg there in the, the very holdfast of the mountains. They ride back out to Edoras and look at what the narrative does here. Firstly, where many sad faces of women looked at from dark doors. I think we're absolutely right, by the way, to just take that minor detail as a, a challenge in support of Eowyn in her assertion to Aragorn that Women are left behind to guard the homestead, but they have no power. They have no ability to defy the enemy if the enemy should come to their door, right? They are left behind in safety, but if the men fail, there will be no safety. There's no pretense that this is a permanent solution to the problem. Women are not being ultimately or categorically protected by being denied the battlefield here, right? There is still something to be said for the protection of the home and the hearth, and this is absolutely what, what Aragorn tasks Eowyn with, right? If a man had taken your place, he wouldn't be allowed to abandon his post, right? If, if a great captain of the guard had taken your place, he wouldn't be allowed to abandon his post. Eowyn, you have been charged with something sacred, you have been charged with something of crucial importance. That's the argument that Aragorn makes in response, but Eowyn's point still holds. But that's not what's significant about that first paragraph. And so without horn or heart or music of men's voices the great ride into the east began with which the songs of rohan were busy for many long lives of men thereafter this is not diegetic this is not a song that is being sung by the riders of rohan as they march to battle here as they ride to battle here this is a song that is composed by the men of rohan long after the fact busy for many long lives of men thereafter and then we get Well, actually, not even my favorite example of Anglo-Saxon poetry, right? Because in next week's reading, we're going to get a red day, a sword day. We're going to get the best and and pithiest and punchiest bit of Anglo-Saxon poetry that we get in the entire book. It's an absolute knockout. But this is also pretty damn good. If you're unfamiliar with Anglo-Saxon poetry, which I guess most of us are in the West, right? There isn't really a strong lineage of anglo-saxon poetry in the modern world not for for the western european and and western european associated cultures of which most of us i think are are a part um it doesn't rest upon meter and it doesn't rest upon rhyme, which are, of course, the two things which differentiate poetry from prose. Here in in our shared cultural tradition, it's not interested in meter and it's not, or, or not in perfect meter anyway, and not even in perfect rhythm. And it's not interested in rhyme hardly at all. Instead, Anglo-Saxon poetry rests upon the power of alliteration, and you will see. More often than not, each line of an Anglo-Saxon poem will come in two paired sentiments. It will be broken quite often by a semicolon or a comma right there in the, in the center of the line. Those two halves will be reflective of each other in some way, and they will usually be alliteratively connected. From dark Dunharrow in the dim morning With Thane and Captain Rothengel's son To Ederas he came The ancient halls of the Mark Wardens mist enshrouded Golden timbers were in gloom mantled Farewell he bade to his free people You can see how we construct the two halves of each of these lines and then bring them together and use alliteration to to connect them. And this is never more effective for me than right here in the middle of the poem. This is just gorgeous. rode the king, fear behind him, fate before him, fealty kept he. That's brilliant. And and again, right, we get not just the alliteration there in the individual lines, but the alliteration split across two lines. Uh, Forth, fear, fate, fealty. Here we are linking into this this rhythmic pattern all of the elements that we're drawing together for this poem i think this is an absolute knockout um the Fold, the Fenmarch, and the wood. The Fold here is the, uh, the heart of Rohan. It is the land around Edoras. It is contrasted with the West Fold out toward Isengard and the East Fold out toward the Anduin, right? So the Fold is just the, the very heart of their nation, the heart of their home. The Fenmarch is the stream which marks the boundary between Rohan and Honorian, the northwestern part of Gondor. So the Fenmarch is, is the national boundary, I suppose, between what is considered Rohan and what is considered Gondor and the Fyrian Wood is the forest which stands alongside the banks of that stream on, on both sides. So through Fold and Fenmarch and the Fyrian Wood, 6,000 spears to sunlending, lending Mundberg, the mighty under Mindoluan, seeking city in the South Kingdom, foe beleaguered, fire encircled, Droom drove them on, darkness took them. Horse and horsemen, hoofbeats afar, sank into silence, so the songs tell us. I mean, much as Mary earlier in this chapter, right? We don't necessarily have to know the words. We don't necessarily have to understand Anglo-Saxon poetic structure. We don't have to understand Anglo-Saxon poetic aesthetic here in order for these words to have their way with us. In order for these words to compel that that bright and brilliant emotional response. It's just uh, a knockout. Oh, uh, sun lending there is uh, the land of Anorian. You'll remember. Isildur's brother, uh, Anarion, who gave his name to Anorion. Anarion taken from the name of the sun, thus Anorion. The, the northwestern part of Gondor is also named for the sun. That's the sun lending. That's uh, the, Rohirrim there recognizing the etymology of, of, uh, of Anorion there in the same way as Isildur is, takes his name from the moon and that's, thus we get Ithilien and, and Minas Ithil and so on, right? The sun and moon of Gondor there opposed on the west and the east. Moonberg is, um, that's the Ruhiric word for Minas Tirith. It just means uh, the the protector hill or the hill of protection. And Mindolluin, you'll recall, is actually the Gondorian word for the mountain which rises up behind Minas Tirith. That, that Minas Tirith is kind of built upon the hill there, but but the mountain itself rises up and is connected to Minas Tirith by that that flank of the hill there. So that's I think that's all the names. Sea King's City in the South Kingdom, obviously recognizing the uh, the influence of the men of Numenor. Right, the, the men of Numenor were the Sea Kings. Sea King City in the South kingdom. South there capitalized, I think, in part to indicate the distinction between Gondor and Arnor, right? This is the southern half of the Numenorean holding here in Middle-earth. foe beleaguered, that is, surrounded by enemies, fire encircled, pretty transparent, uh, connotatively there. Doom drove them on, darkness took them, horse and horsemen, hor- ho- uh, excuse me, horse and horsemen, hoofbeats afar, sank into silence, so the songs tell us. And then we arrive at Edoras, and we are still in this elevated poetic register it was indeed in deepening gloom that the king came to Edoras although it was then but noon by the hour this is again pretty high rhetoric here that we've got this is pretty damn operatic that it was indeed is exactly the same as and so it was that Gandalf and Pippin rode to Minas Tirith and and behold right we're going to have another behold in tonight's reading um Maybe not in tonight's reading, but but before the end of the next chapter, we're going to have another Behold appearing. Remember when when Haberad unfurls the banner at the stone of uh, at the, um, the name is escaping me now, the, the stone of Eorch there um, to, um, to uh, compel the, the march of the armies of the dead with the Grey Company, right? You remember we get that Behold, it was black and no one could see it, but it was probably still really cool and it probably had like a flaming dragon riding a skateboard with sunglasses saying, hang loose underneath, I don't know. Whatever it is, anyway. But this is the elevated language that we get here. It was indeed in deepening gloom that the king came to Edoras, although it was then but noon by the hour. There they halted only a short while and strengthened his host by some threescore of riders that came late to the weapon take. Again, just super elevated language. By some threescore riders that came late to the weapon take. Now having eaten, he made ready to send it again, and he wished his esquire a kindly farewell, but Mary begged for the last time not to be parted from him. There's the transition. There's the come down again. And this carries us, at long last, um, yes, almost halfway through tonight's reading, this takes us to the passage that gives us the title of last week's session of There and Back Again, just to give you some indication of how far behind we are. "'This is no journey for such steeds as Stibba, as I have told you,' said Theoden. "'And in such a battle as we think to make on the fields of Gondor, what would you do, Master Mariadoc, sword thane though you be, and greater of heart than of stature?' As for that, who can tell? answered Mary, but why, Lord, did you receive me as a sword thing if not to stay by your side? And I would not have it said of me in song that I, or that excuse me, I would not have it said of me in song, only that I was always left behind. I received you for your safe keeping, answered Théoden, and also to do as I might bid. None of my riders can bear you as a burden. If the battle were before my gates, maybe your deeds would be remembered by the minstrels, but it is a hundred leagues and two to Mundburg, where Denethor is lord. I will say no more. Mary bowed and went away unhappily and stared at the lines of horsemen. Already the companies were preparing to start. Men were tightening girths, looking to saddles, caressing their saddles, caressing their horses. Some gazed uneasily at the lowering sky. Unnoticed a rider came up and spoke softly in the hobbit's ear. "'Where will wants not. A way opens, so we say,' he whispered. "'And so I have found myself.' Mary looked up and saw that it was the young rider whom he had noticed in the morning. "'You wish to go where the Lord of the Mark goes. I see it in your face.' I do, said Mary. Then you shall go with me, said the writer. I will bear you before me under my cloak until we are far afield and this darkness is yet darker. Such good, uh, so, sorry, such good will should not be denied. Say no more to any man, but come. Thank you indeed, said Mary. Thank you, sir, though I do not know your name. Do you not, said the writer softly. Then call me Dernhelm. As we discussed last time, Dernhelm, a direct Anglo-Saxon transliteration here in the pages of J.R.R. R. Tolkien, simply means secret helmet which it is hard not to love. It is hard not to adore. I mean, usually here and there and back again, usually here in the the sessions that I do on the internet, in the podcasts that I produce, I try to preserve a certain narrative continuity, right? I try to preserve a certain narrative immediacy. I don't talk about spoilers very much because to talk about what is coming next too often pulls us out of where we are now. And where we are now is more than deserving of our attention. But let's just tip our hand, shall we? You guys... It's Eowyn. Eowyn is right here, riding in the guise of a man to war with Theoden, king, and she absolutely recognizes what it is that that burns, that blazes within Mary's heart, or at least believes that she does. Though Mary still is not quite where Eowyn is. We discussed last time that Eowyn is, in large part, at least, and I did see some discussion about this and received a couple of uh, a couple of messages about this and. I, I can be convinced. I think we will circle back and talk to Eowyn when we get to the Houses of the Healing, right? That's going to be a, that's going to be the, the last point in Eowyn's arc, and it is also oftentimes a point, I think, that is misunderstood by people who are critical of Professor Tolkien's work. So we'll talk about that when we get to it, and we'll describe her entire arc a little more carefully. But certainly, as she says to Aragorn, one of the things that she's looking for is glory. It's It's combat. She wants to be a rider of Rohan. She's a shield maiden, not a nurse. She wants the fight. And she believes, at least that she recognizes that in the breast of Mary too. And that is not completely inconsistent, right? Why, Lord, did you receive me as a sword then if not to stay by your side? And I would not have it said of me in song, only that I was always left behind. This is the first time that he... This is not, I would be ashamed to have my friends fight if I don't fight. This is, there are going to be songs sung of this, and I don't want there to be a line in a song and said, and Mary... Lingered behind. I suppose it would have to be alliterative in order for it to work as a poem of Rohan, but still, nonetheless. And Mary marched not, right? We'll, we'll get some. <laughs> and the Hobbit, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm lacking alliterative powers this evening. I'm sure you can all come up with better things in the chat. Uh, but nonetheless, Mary does want some pursuit of glory here, right? He wants to be counted. Among the Rohirrim, he wants to rise to his stature, which uh, Th- uh, Theoden obviously acknowledges. Sword Thane though you be, and greater of heart than of stature. What would you do in the fight, Mary? I don't know, says Mary. And by the way, nor do you, Theoden King. You don't know how the fight's going to throw down, and I don't want to be left behind anyway. I received you for your safekeeping, answered Theoden. And you can imagine the, the knife to the heart of Mary in that moment, right? Oh, your oath? I took it to protect you, Mary to stop you from going off and doing something stupid, to stop you from trying to venture northwest back out of, of Rohan, back home toward your shire, believing that you had no greater part to... Pl- I-, I took it for your safekeeping. I took it for your protection. It was a kindness to you, Mary. Uh, And also to do as I might bid. I I took your service. Like, I meant what I said. I took your service. But that means that you have to do as I tell you. None of my riders can bear you as burden. If the battle were before my gates, maybe your deed would be remembered by the minstrels. But it is a hundred leagues and two to Mundberg where Denethor is lord. 300 miles, more or less, right? It is a hundred leagues and two to Mundberg where Denethor is lord. I will say no more. That's it. I have granted you the return of your oath. I have said that your oath is fulfilled and released you from my service. And now I am telling you, no, you will be a burden to my riders. You won't just contribute nothing to the battle. You will actually make us worse in the battle. So no, you may not come. And that is when uh, Dernhelm, the secretive, slips in here and, and gives... Lovely line. Like this, this is the reason that I entitled last week's session with this line. Where will wants not, a way opens, so we say, and so I have found myself. Where will wants not, a way opens. Where where there's a will, there's a way, right? This is this is a an archaic formulation of a phrase that we use in modern English. Where there's a will, there's a way. This is the kind of Rohiric Anglo-Saxon formulation of that. Where will wants not, a way opens, so we say, and so I have found myself. And you'll note there. Where there's a will, there's a way, in the modern sense, speaks to overcoming and to fortitude, sometimes to cleverness, sometimes to to a means of of formulating a smarter solution to what seems to be an intractable problem. If you care enough, where there is a will, you will find a way. Either you will find some smart way of evading the problem, or you will overcome it. You You will just... Burn through it with your, your great fortitude of will. You will just power through whatever the problem is and come out the other side. But you'll note the subtle distinction here in the Rohiric form of this. Where will wants not, where your will is lacking nothing, where your will is steadfast, a way opens. It's not about circumventing nor overcoming. If you are courageous, then the world itself will yield to you. Something... In the natural order of things, will open up to that kind of, of dauntless courage, to that kind of heroism, to that force of will. The world in the frame of, of, well, in the frame of the Lord of the Rings, certainly, in the frame of Tolkien's Legendarium, certainly, but more specifically here in the Rohiric frame, this is the perspective, this is the, the the belief system that informs the way that the men of the Rohirrim, the, the writers of Rohan, to kind of use a less charged, uh, a less uh, gender-specific term, I suppose, this is how the writers of Rohan see the world. Where will wants not, a way opens, so we say, he whispered, and so I have found myself. This is a true thing that I have observed too. You wish to go where the Lord of the Mark goes? I see it in your face. I do, said Mary. Then you shall go with me. I will bear you before me under my cloak until we are far afield and this darkness is yet darker. Such goodwill should not be denied. Say no more to any man, but come. And then we get the exchange of the names. And that brings us to the end of um, <laughs> Wilhelm Scream saying that I cannot let this slide pass without acknowledging where there's a whip, there's a way. Oh boy, you guys. Uh if you haven't seen the Rankin Bass adaptation of The Hobbit, we should do that, right? Like there's no reason not to do that. If we're going to spend 12 weeks looking at the Peter Jackson adaptations, we should definitely spend at least a week talking about the Rankin Bass adaptation and talking about yes, in large part where there's a whip, there's a way. I do think I do think that is the least successful maybe creative endeavor like i don't want to talk too boldly here i don't want to i don't want to exaggerate this too much maybe that is probably not the least successful creative endeavor it is definitely the least successful song in in the pages uh, in the, the the frame of the Rankin Bass hobbit movie um yeah yeah but we should definitely talk about that at some point good good all right yes please Rankin Bass says becca eller <laughs> And Chris is saying, oh, no, which might actually be about the same subject. Uh, Becca also pointing out that she wants a time of my life dance with Eowyn and Mary. You know, some fine day at the Houses of Healing. May we all make it there? Well, maybe see what happens between Mary and Eowyn when we get there. All right, let's move into chapter four, the Siege of Gondor. How many slides do I have to cover before I hit as many as I promised? One, two, three, four, five. Well, okay, six more in a half hour. That's probably not going to happen, but we'll do our best. This carries us in to chapter four, the Siege of Gondor. When Pippin awakes at the beginning of the chapter, just to keep you up to date here, when Pippin awakes at the beginning of the chapter, it is the morning of March 10th, the dawnless day. Frodo and Sam on this day, as as Pippin is waking, well, not as Pippin is waking, but on this day, Frodo and Sam see the host of, uh, the, the Morgul host descend from Minas Morgul down into Ithilien and thence onward to Osgiliath, right? So that's what's happening now. At the end of this chapter, it is going to be March 12th. We're going to skip ahead two days in the course of this chapter and get to the final phase off, which we're not going to hit this week, but we will definitely talk about next week, between Gandalf and the Witch-King of Angmar. It's about to get real, but we start off with Pippin. Pippin here uh, spending some time with his lord, Denethor. I thought, sir, that you would tell me my duties. I will, when I learn what you are fit for, said Denethor, but that I should learn soonest maybe if I keep you beside me. The esquire of my chamber has begged leave to go to the out garrison, so you shall take his place for a while. You shall wait on me, bear errands, and talk to me if war and council leave me any leisure. Can you sing? Yes, said Pippin. Well, yes, well enough for my own people, but we have no songs fit for great halls and evil times, Lord. We seldom sing of anything more terrible than wind or rain, and most of my songs are about things that make us laugh, or about food and drink, of course. And why should such songs be unfit for my halls or for such hours as these? We who have lived long under the shadow may surely listen to echoes from a land untroubled by it, then we may feel that our vigil was not fruitless, though it may have been thankless. Pippin's heart sank. He did not relish the idea of singing any song of the Shire to the Lord of Minas Tirith, certainly not the comic ones he knew best. They were too, well, rustic for such an occasion. He was, however, spared the ordeal for the present. He was not commanded to sing. Denethor turned to Gandalf, asking questions about the Rahirim and their policies, and the position of Aomer, the king's nephew. Pippin marveled at the amount the Lord seemed to know about a people that lived far away, though it must, he thought, be many years since Denethor himself had ridden abroad presently denethor waved to pippin and dismissed him again for a while go to the armories of the citadel he said and get you there the livery and gear of the tower it will be ready it was commanded yesterday return when you are clad it was as he said and Pippin soon found himself arrayed in strange garments, all of black and silver. He had a small hauberk, its rings forged of steel maybe, yet black as jet, and a high-crowned helm with small raven wings on either side, set with a silver star in the centre of the circlet. Above the male was a short surcoat of black, but broidered on the breast in silver was the token of the tree. His old clothes were folded and put away, but he was permitted to keep the grey cloak of Lorien, though not to wear it while on duty. He looked now, had he known it, verily Ernel <laughs> y Farianath, I suppose. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm stumbling over my Gondorian cinder in here. Ernel y Farianath, the prince of the halflings, that folk that had called him. But he felt uncomfortable, and the gloom began to weigh on his spirits. It was dark and dim all day. From the sunless dawn until evening, the heavy shadow had deepened and all hearts in the city were oppressed. Far above, a great cloud streamed slowly westward from the black land, devouring light, borne upon a wind of war. But below, the air was still and breathless, as if all the Vale of Anduin waited for the onset of a ruinous storm. So here in Gondor, at the beginning of the chapter, entitled The Siege of Gondor, we are leaning heavily on the coming darkness. We have been talking about the dawnless day. We've been talking about this shadow that has flowed forth from the depths of Mordor itself across Ithilien, across Osgiliath uh, across Gondor, now across Minas Tirith, now all the way out to Rohan too, right? We've had glimpses of this from various perspectives, but this is its point. It lays heavy on the hearts of everyone in the Citadel. All hearts in the Citadel were oppressed, But below, the air was still and breathless, as if all the Vale of Anduin waited for the onset of a ruinous storm. This is psychological warfare. This is the proof of the power of Mordor, of course, but it is also psychological warfare. It is also wearing on the will of the stalwart defenders of Minas Tirith. So we're going to talk about Pippin arming himself and being girded in the manner of his lord, in exactly the same way as Merry was just girded in the manner of his lord in just a moment. But first, we're going to talk about songs. I thought, sir, that you would tell me my duties. I will, when I learn what you are fit for, said Denethor. What good are you, Pippin? What what good are you, Peregrine son of Paladin? That I shall learn soonest maybe if I keep you beside me. The Esquire of my chamber has begged me to go to the out garrison, that is the the frontier here, right? So you shall take his place for a while, you shall wait on me, bear errands, and talk to me if war and council leave me any leisure. Can you sing? And Pippin hesitates. Yes, well, yeah, well, enough for my own people. But we have no songs fit for great halls and evil times. We seldom sing of anything more terrible than wind or rain, and most of my songs are about things that make us laugh, or about food and drink, of course. And then Denethor... We've heard this before, right? We've heard this from Boromir. This is where Boromir learned this perspective on the world, I'm sure. We who have lived long under the shadow may listen listen to echoes from a land untroubled by it. Then we may feel that our vigil was not fruitless, though it may have been thankless. We've been here doing the work. We've been here restraining the power of Mordor. We've been keeping an eye on the Dark Lord for all these years so that you and the Shire can live your perfect, happy life. Now tell me, how many black riders have you seen in the Shire? Oh, there there were a handful? Well, look, I didn't say that we were perfect at our vigil, did I? I didn't say that we had absolutely restrained the power of Mordor. I mean, no one can do... Denethor's burdened position here is not in accord with the other perspectives that we get on the conflict between Gondor and and Mordor in general, right? This is not what the best men of Gondor believe to be the case. I'm thinking of Baragond. I'm thinking, of course, of Faramir, who is going to make his triumphant return. Well, actually, the opposite of a triumphant return is going to make his, his catastrophically ruinous return into the narrative in just a couple of slides time. They don't see it this way. Faramir never talks to Frodo about, well, we here stand stalwart so that you can enjoy second breakfast. There's never any discussion of that. That's not why they do it. He's fighting for Gondor, for the protection of the other realms. Yes, but he's fighting against a shadow that ought to be fought. Here we see from Denethor exactly where Boromir learned his perspective on the war that has riven Middle-earth for, for countless years untold now. Pippin's heart sinks. He doesn't relish the idea, but luckily he doesn't get commanded to sing because Denethor turns back to Gandalf and is peppering him with questions about the writers of Rohan. Not about Theoden, you'll note, but Eomer, the king's nephew. And Pippin marvels at how well-informed Denethor is. Then he waves Pippin away so that he can go and get clad. Uh, It was as he said, Pippin soon found himself arrayed in strange garments, all of black and silver. He had a small hauberk, its rings forged of steel maybe, yet black as jet, and a high-crowned helm with small raven wings on either side, set with a silver star in the center of the circlet. This is gorgeous, the black circlet with the the silver tree inscribed upon it. it. It's just, yeah, Pippin looks fantastic. I am absolutely certain of that, though not terribly hobbitish, right? He's allowed to, his clothes are folded and put away, so those just aren't your clothes anymore, Pippin. Terribly sorry about that. He is allowed to keep his cloak but not allowed to wear it when he's on duty. It would be, of course, wildly inappropriate for a man of Gondor or a hobbit of Gondor to wear a cloak of Lorien while he is serving his lord Denethor. Then we get the, uh, he looked now, had he known it verily, Ernel y Ferri, fer- I don't know why this word gives me so much trouble. Ernel i Ferianath, the Prince of the Halflings. That is, of course, Prince of the Halflings is a direct translation there from the Gondorian Sindarin that folk had called him, but he felt uncomfortable. That folk had called him. This is the folk of Minas Tirith, right? People have been talking about Pippin since his arrival. They've been talking about him since he swore fealty to Danathar and since he was taken on as a man of Gondor in the first place. He has gained a measure of fame here and people are speculating, speculating about him. But for all that he is now fulfilling the role that has been placed upon him, for all that he is now looking the part, he felt uncomfortable and the gloom began to weigh on his spirits. He can dress as a man of Gondor and he can serve as a man of Gondor, but he is not a man of Gondor. Luckily, Gandalf comes. Oh, this is from the... uh, Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Suddenly, suddenly as they talked, they were stricken, dumb, frozen as... uh, Excuse me. Suddenly, as they talked, they were stricken, dumb, frozen as as it were, to listening stones. Pippin cowered down with his hands pressed to his ears, but Beragon, who had been looking out from the battlement as he spoke of Faramir, remained there, stiffened, staring out with, start- with starting eyes. Pippin knew the shuddering cry that he had heard. It was the same that he had heard long ago in the Marish of the Shire, and now it had grown in power and hatred, piercing the heart with a poisonous despair. At last, Baragon spoke with an effort. They have come, he said. Take courage and look. There are fell things below. Reluctantly, Pippin climbed onto the seat and looked out over the wall. The Pelennor lay dim beneath him, fading away to the scarce-gassed line of the great river. But now, the wheeling— but now, wheeling swiftly across it like shadows of untimely night—he saw in the middle layers below him five bird-like forms, horrible as carrion fowl, yet greater than eagles, cruel as death. Now they swooped near, venturing almost within bowshot of the walls. Now they circled away. Black riders, muttered Pippin, black riders of the air. But see, Berrigond, he cried, they're looking for something, surely. See how they wheel and swoop, always down to that point over there. And can you see something moving on the ground? Dark little things, yes, men on horses, four or five. I cannot stand it. Gandalf, Gandalf, save us. Another long screech rose and fell and he threw himself back again from the wall, panting like a hunted animal, faint and seemingly remote through the shuddering cry he heard winding up from below the sound of a trumpet ending on a long high note. Faramir, the Lord Faramir, it is his call, cried Baragon. Brave heart, but how can he win to the gate if these foul hell hawks have other weapons than fear? But look, they hold on, they will make the gate. No, the horses are running mad. Look, the men are thrown, they are running on foot. No, one is still up, but he rides back to the others. That will be the captain. He can master both beasts and men! Ah, there is one of the foul things is stooping on him. Help, help. Will no one go out to him? Faramir. So Faramir returns to Minas Tirith, pursued by black riders of the air. The Nazgul have come in all their great fury. Pippin appealing here, Gandalf, Gandalf has to help someone like do something. And Faramir still stalwart in the pursuit. I love how we get this described in a very non-Tolkinian way, actually, right? We're not getting the actual drama that is unfolding. We're not getting it directly. We're getting it all through this attributed dialogue from Pippin and from Baragon. We're seeing the uh, Faramir, the Lord Fa- Faramir. It is his call. Braveheart, but how can he win to the gate if these foul hellhawks of other weapons of fear? But look, they hold on. They will make the gate. No, the horses are running mad. Look, the men are thrown. They're running on foot. Just a uh, complete, you know, play-by-play here from Baragon of Faramir's return to, uh, to Minas Tirith. It's, uh... It's really good, it's really frantic, and it does raise the adrenaline more so than raising the rhetoric would at this point, right? What we're doing is... Well, we're doing two things, I would argue, in this sequence. We are anchoring the experience of the Nazgul, firstly, and of Faramir's flight in the personal. We aren't getting the action. We're not left to draw our own emotional response to the action because we're getting Pippin's response to it and we're getting Baragon's response to it. The whole... The whole narration of these events is infused with with rising panic and rising tension, and with this this glad heroism, this fierce heroism at the heart of it. Right? It, it's it's more emotionally charged than a simple account of these events would be. We're also, of course, leaning into the idea that stories will be told. That stories are being told right now, even as these events are unfolding. Barragond is composing the narrative that will be passed down to future generations of Minas Tirith should they survive. It's extraordinarily powerful. And then of course we get Gandalf. With that, Baragon sprang away and ran off into the gloom. Ashamed of his terror, while Baragond of the guard thought first of the captain whom he loved, Pippin got up and peered out. At that moment he caught a flash of white and silver coming from the north, like a small star down on the dusky fields. It moved with the speed of an arrow and grew as it came, converging swiftly with the flight of the foreman toward the gate. It seemed to Pippin that a pale light was spread about it, and the heavy shadows gave way before it, and then as it drew near he thought that he had heard, like an echo in the walls, a great voice calling, "'Gandalf!' he cried. "'Gandalf! "'He always turns up when things are darkest. "'Go on! "'Go on, White Rider! "'Gandalf! "'Gandalf!' he shouted wildly, "'like an onlooker at a great race, "'urging on a runner who was far beyond encouragement. "'But now the dark, swooping shadows were aware of the newcomer. "'One wheeled toward him, "'but it seemed to Pippin that he raised his hand, "'and from it a shaft of white light stabbed upwards. "'The Nazgul gave a long, wailing cry and swerved away. And with that, the four others wavered and then rising in swift spirals, they passed away eastward, vanishing into the lowering cloud above and down on the Pelennor. It seemed for a while less dark. We talked about the uh, Pelennor, I guess, two weeks ago, maybe even three weeks ago, as we described the uh, the geography of Minas Tirith. But I have received a couple of questions about the Battle of the Pelennor Fields and what exactly the Pelennor is. The Pelennor is simply the the farmland, I suppose, that exists outside of Minas Tirith. It is the Falborough, if you like. It is that region which exists beyond the city's wall, but is still, to some degree or other, a part of the city. It is farmland that feeds the great castle of Minas Tirith. It is encircled by a greater wall, but that wall is in egregious disrepair. So it is settled, civilized land that is under the shadow of Minas Tirith, but not actually within the Great Wall of Minas Tirith. It is not within, like, the first terrace of Minas Tirith. So the Pelennor will be assaulted first, should any host come to, to strive to take Minas Tirith from the men of Gondor. Yeah, Becca Eller says, at least Pippin understands what story he's in. He has come to expect catastrophe Exactly. Isn't that lovely? Gandalf, he cried, Gandalf! He always turns up when things are darkest. Pippin's experience of that is at least incomplete, but I like his faith. I like his faith at this point. Go on, go on, White Rider! Gandalf, Gandalf, he shouted wildly, like an onlooker at a great race, urging on a runner who is far beyond encouragement, right? Tolkien himself calling back to this notion of of Baragond giving us a play-by-play in the previous slide. And I wanted to uh, call this out too. With that, Baragon sprang away and ran off into the gloom. Ashamed of his terror, while Baragond of the Guard thought first of the captain whom he loved, Pippin got up and peered out. I've seen this... um, I've seen some readers struggle with the parsing of this. Right, we have to understand that that this is uh, two parts of a description of Pippin, separated with the description of Baragond. Ashamed of his terror, Pippin got up and peered out. That is what the uh, that is what the sentence would read like without this interrupting clause right in the middle. Ashamed of his terror, Pippin got up and peered out. While Baragond of the guard thought first of the captain whom he loved. So Baragond is not afraid. Baragond is not uh, either feeling terror or is ashamed of his terror. It is Pippin that is feeling terror and is ashamed of his terror. Ashamed of his terror, while Baragond of the Guard thought first of the captain whom he loved, Pippin got up and peered out. And at that moment, of course, he witnesses the coming out of the north. Uh, At that moment, he caught a flash of white and silver coming from the north like a small star down in the dusky fields. It moved with the speed of an arrow and grew as it came, converging swiftly with the flight of the foreman toward the gate. It seemed to Pippin that a pale light was spread about it and the heavy shadows gave way before it. And then as it drew near, he thought he heard like an echo in the walls, a great voice calling. And thus... Faramir returns to Minas Tirith, and the Nazgul retire to fight another day oh <laughs> Wilhelm Scream uh, paraphrasing Han Solo here in The Force Awakens so it's big we'll just do what we always do something always happens at this point where we find an unexpected you catastrophic way to win the day yeah it's Gandalf Gandalf will take down the uh, take down the shield around Starkiller Base that's that's always going to happen and Nikki says and where is Denethor in all this I ask uh, back in the throne room I imagine back in the throne room doing what he does because Denethor of, well actually we're going to get to that Uh, maybe the slide after this one. If we can make it to the slide after this one, I'm going to be feeling pretty good, I got to tell you. So back uh, in the throne room, we have the discussion with Faramir, who catches us up on some mysterious hobbits that he may have run into over there in Ithilien. Then suddenly Faramir looked at Pippin. But now we come to strange matters, he said, for this is not the first Huffling that I have seen walking out of northern legends into the Southlands. At that, Gandalf sat up and gripped the arms of his chair, but he said nothing, and with a look stopped the exclamation on Pippin's lips. Denethor looked at their faces and nodded his head, as though in sign that he had read much there before it was spoken. Slowly, while the others sat silent and still, Faramir told his tale with his eyes for the most part on Gandalf, though now and again his glance strayed to Pippin, as if to refresh his memory of others that he had seen. As his story was unfolded of his meeting with Frodo and his servant, and of the events at Hennethonun, Pippin became aware that Gandalf's hands were trembling as they clutched the carven wood. White, they seemed now, and very old, and as he looked at them, suddenly with a thrill of fear, Pippin knew that Gandalf gandalf himself was troubled, even afraid. The air of the room was close and still. At last, when Faramir spoke of his parting with the travelers and of their resolve to go to Cirith his voice fell, and he shook his head and sighed. Then Gandalf sprang up. Cirith Ungol! Vale! he said. The time, Faramir! The time! When did you part with them? When, did they re- when would they reach that accursed valley? I parted with them in the morning, two days ago, said Faramir. It is fifteen leagues thence to the Vale of the Morgulduin. If they went straight south, and then they would still be five leagues westward of the accursed tower. At swiftness, they have not come there before today, and maybe they have not come there yet. Indeed, I see what you fear. But the darkness is not due to their venture. It began yester eve, and all Ithilium was under shadow last night. It is clear to me that the enemy has long planned an assault on us, and its hour has already been determined before ever the travelers left my keeping. No, 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 Gandalf. I understand that you're freaked out. Uh, don't worry. Whatever Frodo and Sam are doing, Frodo and his servant are doing over there near Ungle, they are not responsible for the shadow. They couldn't have been because the shadow descended upon Athelion while presumably Frodo and Sam were still in a relatively safe part of the world. I am... Oh God, I'm so touched by the body language that we get here, right? So often, because his skill is so great, because his his interest is so acute, Professor Tolkien gives us fantastic uh, dialogue. He gives us luminous dialogue. He gives us unforgettable dialogue. But sometimes he will step back from that and leave unsaid many key things. And we get here two perfect instances of acting on the page, right? Denethor looked at their faces and nodded his head as though in sign that he had read much there before it was spoken. And then, of course, as his story was unfolded of his meeting with Frodo and his servant and of the events at Annun, Pippin became aware that Gandalf's hands were trembling as they clutched the carven wood. White, they seemed now, and very old. And as he looked at them suddenly with a thrill of fear, Pippin knew that Gandalf, Gandalf himself, was troubled, even afraid. Pippin's realization here. Of course, Pippin, who has been so recently chastised that he walks through the world with his eyes closed, that he does not seek great understanding. Aragorn's the king? How old are you anyway, Gandalf? And why have I never thought to ask that question before? Now Pippin is seeing very clearly Gandalf's trembling hands, looking white and old, indicating that Gandalf himself... Is afraid, and even then the desperation. Right, if we hadn't had that that beat of acting here, then we would still have had the attributed dialogue. Then Gandalf sprang up. Caranthor, Morgulveil, the time, Faramir, the time. When did you part with them? When would they reach that accursed valley? Gandalf obviously near panic at the news of of Frodo. Yeah. Okay, let me uh, check the time. Okay, we're doing okay. Let's see. Gandalf does seem to have moved on from his initial nihilistic appearance as Gandalf the White, says uh, Wilhelm Scream. Has he found purpose? That's a really interesting question. Has he found purpose or is he simply more himself or are things just now more pressing? I do see Gandalf the White as a figure who is returning to his power and I think that you can argue that he is not himself until he faces Saruman, right? I, I think that is the moment, not to indicate that that the facing of Saruman is what elevates Gandalf back into his, his personhood in fullest measure. I don't think that that is the case, but I do think that it is when he confronts Saruman that... By that point, he has already kind of uh, become himself again, following his his death at Kazadum and his his rebirth thereafter, and his desperate flight from place to place across Middle Earth, you know, visiting Lothlorien and flying to Fangorn and doing all the things that he did at that point. I think that he is not quite himself yet, but the difference between Gandalf the White and Gandalf the Grey is treacherous and subtle and may be nothing at all it may be nothing at all because Gandalf is also facing circumstances that he has never faced before there are people out there who have done incredibly close and careful readings on the differences between Gandalf the Grey and Gandalf the White looking at the language that they use and the way in which they express themselves and the the actions that are attributed to them right these two distinct characters were nonetheless the same character I just simply don't know quite where I come down on that I do think that Gandalf the White is greater, purer, more connected, but also closer to the surface of his emotions. He is less burdened and less weary than Gandalf the Grey was. Gandalf the Grey was more inscrutable, I think it's fair to say. But this is the second instance in as many chapters as we've had Pippin discerning something within Gandalf. You remember the laughter that Gandalf conceals, the laughter that he constrains because if he starts laughing this this ferocious joy within him, if he starts laughing it would set a whole kingdom laughing. Pippin recognized that within him and now he recognizes this fear. And partly this may just be also Pippin's growing acuity, right? Pippin's greater, uh, greater discernment and greater empathy. He is now more capable of reading the people around him, including Denethor. Denethor looked at their faces and nodded his head as though in sign that he had read much there before it was spoken. Denethor, of course, anticipating Frodo's role in the story and, uh, and what is to come. Okay, let's do one more. Uh, let's do one more slide before we wrap up. I'm actually very pleased with the progress that we've made tonight. This is excellent. Let's do one more slide before we wrap up. Faramir and Denethor, of course. "'Stir not the bitterness in the cup that I mixed for myself,' said Denethor. "'Have I not tasted it now many nights upon my tongue, foreboding the worse yea, worse yet lay in the dregs? "'And now indeed I find, would it were not so, "'would that this thing had come to me!' "'Comfort yourself,' said Gandalf. "'In no case would Boromir have brought it to you. "'He is dead and died well. "'May he sleep in peace, yet you deceive yourself. "'He would have stretched out his hand to this thing, "'and taking it he would have fallen.' He would have kept it for his own, and when he returned, he would not have known your son. The face of Denethor set hard and cold. "'You found Boromir less apt to your hand, did you not?' he said softly. "'But I, who was his father, say that he would have brought it to me. "'You are wise, maybe, Mithrandir, yet with all your subtleties you are not all wisdom. Counsels may be found that are neither the webs of wizards nor the haste of fools. "'I have in this matter more law and wisdom than you deem.' "'What, then, is your wisdom?' said Gandalf.' "'Enough to perceive that there are two follies to avoid. "'To use this thing is perilous. "'At this hour to send it to the hands of a witless halfling "'into the land of the enemy himself, as you have done. "'And this son of mine, that is madness. "'And the the Lord Denethor, what would he have done? "'Neither. "'But most surely not for any argument "'would he have set this thing at a hazard beyond all "'but a fool's hope, risking our utter ruin "'if the enemy should recover what he lost.' Nay, it would have been kept, hidden, hidden, deep and dark, not used, I say, unless at the uttermost end of need and set beyond his grasp, save by a victory so final that what then befell would not trouble us being dead. You think, as is your wont, my lord, of Gondor only, said Gandalf. Yet there are other men and other lives and times still to be. And for me, I pity even his slaves. So Denethor is wise enough to know that the ring is incredibly powerful. Wise enough to know that he would not use the ring except in direst exigency, right? He would only use the ring if it were absolutely necessary, or brackets, he was in proximity to the ring for more than like a minute. Gandalf pointing out, comfort yourself. In no case would Boromir have brought it to you. Boromir, firstly, he's dead and died well. May he sleep in peace. What more can you ask for for your son whom you loved so well? What more can you ask for for Boromir? Not for you and not for Gondor, whom Boromir might have served here in its darkest hour. Boromir died well. Boromir triumphed. He overcame. Few have won such a victory as, as Aragorn says back at uh, Parth Galen, right? He is dead and died well. May he sleep in peace. Yet you deceive yourself he would have stretched out his hand to this thing and taking it, he would have fallen. Yes, he was tempted by the ring. He was corrupted by the ring, but he resisted. But had he seized it, that would have been it. That's the ball game. Then we've got a new dark lord and his name is Boromir. He would have kept it for his own and when he returned, you would not have known your son. To which Denethor responds, you found Boromir less apt to your hand, did you not? Indicating that... Faramir is now under the sway of Gandalf, less apt to your hand. Oh, you had trouble controlling Boromir, did you? Because Boromir is so amazing and you suck, Mithrandir. You found Boromir less apt to your hand, did you? He said softly. But I, who was his father, say that he would have brought it to me. You are wise, maybe Mithrandir, yet with all your subtleties, you have not all wisdom. Counsels may be found that are neither the webs of wizards nor the haste of fools. I have in this matter more lore and wisdom than you deem. And Gandalf's like, okay, cool. What? What would you have done had the ring come into your possession? Had Boromir somehow managed to bring it all the way to Gondor, if he brought it all the way to Minas Tirith, if he'd brought it all the way to the Citadel, and indeed all the way to your throne room, and had then somehow handed it over to you, what would you have done? To which Danithor responds, I would have hidden it. Uh... Enough to perceive that there are two follies to avoid. To use this thing as perilous. At this hour, to send it in the hands of a witless halfling into the land of the enemy himself as you have done and this son of mine, that is madness. It is perilous. It is dangerous to use the ring. But your option is not a better option. Your option is nuts. Your option is crazy what are you thinking to to return it to the enemy you might as well have have put a bow on it right you might as well have just gift wrapped it and sent it with sent it with a box of chocolates with with Frodo into Mordor and the Lord Denethor what would he have done says Gandalf you'll note too carefully using the title here right what then is your wisdom he says earlier and the Lord Denethor what would he have done what would you have done in your, your grandeur and your wisdom and in your lore? What would you have done at this time? Neither. But most certainly, most surely, rather, not for any argument would he have set this thing at a hazard beyond all beyond all but a fool's hope, risking, risking our utter ruin if the enemy should recover what he lost. Not for any argument would he, referring to himself in the third person, right? Not for any argument would he have set this thing at a hazard beyond all but a fool's hope, risking our utter ruin if the enemy should recover what he lost. I would not have sent it into Mordor, you lunatic! There's a tiny sliver of hope that you're clinging to? That's not a plan. That's what you do in the absence of a plan. Nay, it should have been kept, hidden, hidden dark and deep. Not used, I say, unless at the uttermost end of need, but set beyond his grasp, saved by a victory so final that what then befell would not trouble us being dead. We would have put it somewhere where Sauron would have had to cleave his way through all of Minas Tirith to get to it, and if he got it then... Whatever. We'd be dead. We wouldn't care at that point. We would expend the last of our strength in defending Minas Tirith, as we have. By the way, we would protect the ring as we have protected the lands to the west. Sauron would have had to kill us all to get to it. And then if he gets it, then so what? What is he going to do to us at that point? We are already dead. You think, Gandalf replies, as is your wont, my lord, of Gondor only. Yet there are other men and other lives and time still to be. And for me, I pity even his slaves." Well, that's great. Your plan's awesome. Bury it in the deepest part of Minas Tirith. Force Sauron to fall along uh, to fall along, uh, upon Minas Tirith, to slay every man of Gondor that now remains, to seize the reign. You're right. You don't care because you're already dead. But what of Rohan? What of Eriador? What of the lands west and north and south? What of everyone but you? You are the greatest bastion against Mordor. You are the the hope of Numenor against the shadow, but you're not all that there is. There are other places. And to expand all of your strength in the defense of the ring, acknowledging that if you fail, Sauron gets the ring back, that is no hope. That's not... <laughs> I, I understand that sending a fro- uh, sending a, a halfling alone or f- sending a halfling and a companion and someone who used to be a halfling alone into Mordor to try to throw the ring into the, the, the cracks of doom, yes, there is a slim hope there. It, it's not a wise plan, perhaps, but it's the best that we've got because keeping the ring here in Minas Tirith, that is not a plan. There is no hope that you are going to withstand the might of Sauron. You, in fact, aren't going to withstand the might of Sauron. That, guys takes us the time i'm very pleased i did want to do one more slide but i'm actually very pleased with the 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 uh journey that we've made together this evening we are going to pick up next time with pippin talking to gandalf about hope and then uh well and then the coming siege of gondor right and then we're going to continue on in fact let me check my slide here um Yes, we're going to cover the rest of Chapter 4 and Chapter 5, The Ride of the Rohirrim, which is a very short chapter, but a very brilliant chapter here in The Return of the King. So Chapter 4 and Chapter 5 next week, 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central. That's Friday, April the 19th, another evening session next week. I hope you will be able to join me for that. Before we wrap up, let me take a quick glance at the questions bucket here. Let me cancel this slide, too. Look at that. Erica asks, as the darkness increases, everyone becomes more despondent and hopeless. Is the growing darkness magically lowering the hopes of the people, or is it simply the effect of having darkness around, similar to how winter lowers spirits, but to a much greater effect? Um, I think it's both, Erica. I think that um, there is a there is a physiological response to light and darkness, right? There is also a metaphorical response to light and darkness, and there is also a I don't know, kind of a rational, martial response to this coming darkness. This is a demonstration of power. It's a fairly, well, harmless demonstration of power, but it is a demonstration of power nonetheless. It is the shadow of Mordor that is now stretching out across the land to the west. So I'm sure that, yes, being deprived of light for long periods, there is the Yes, simply being deprived of light. A right that that is going to be difficult, and we see moments where you know um, I'm thinking of Tom Bombadil urging the the hobbits to to run free and naked upon the grass and beneath the sun after they emerge from from the barrows back in uh, back in the Fellowship of the Ring, which feels like a lifetime ago at this point. Let me tell you, he's reconnecting. I'm thinking of the Fellowship emerging from uh, from the mines of Moria and kind of blinking into the sunlight there and being restored by the presence of the sun. So yes, the absence of the sun in that sense is going to have a deleterious effect fact there was also that magical sense that well now the whole the whole order of the natural world is being perverted by Sauron, right? This is this is terrible. This is the end of times. This is the darkest day. No, there will be now no sun hereafter, and there will be now no sun hereafter until a great victory is won. We'll get to that in due course. Um, I don't think it's just physiological. I do think that it's magical too, and uh, physiological, psychological, magical, symbolic and metaphorical, I think it works on pretty much every level. It is a very disquieting thing and you can imagine Faramir riding back, racing back from Ithilien, right? Racing back toward Minas Tirith with the darkness behind him growing by the moment. This this darkness that is enshrouding all the world that he has known. You know, casting shadows over the Garden of Athelion, which, despite the presence of the enemy, has yet remained largely untouched. Is still largely beautiful. It is not a corrupted and blasted land the way that you know the barren lands to the north, are or Daggerlad, or, or or you know the the the. Um, eh, now I can't even, the, the Emid Muel, right? <laughs> Sorry, it took me a moment there. I couldn't remember the name of the mountains, but, or the Dead Marshes for that uh, for that matter, right? Athelion has not been corrupted by the touch of Mordor yet, but the coming of the shadow effectively does that. It, it effectively drains it of life and of color. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I, I'm fascinated this time through more than ever before by the shadow. I really like that. Um, Oh, a really interesting question from Joseph here. Uh, Is Mary inherently more Rahiric and Pippin inherently more Gondorian, or is it purely circumstances that lead them to their adoptive peoples? Hmm. That is fascinating. That is a really, really interesting question that I would need to give much, much more thought. Um, Instinctively... Uh, No, I I think instinctively, I might be inclined to invert them in that instance. I might be inclined to see Merry as being a little more Gondorian, given his relative maturity, his relative, even by the standard of hobbits, right? He he places a greater emphasis on... Solidity and on on comfort, and Pippin is a little more reckless and a little more carefree and a little more you know riding the plains of Rohan with the wind in his hair. I, I might be tempted to invert them actually now that you mention it, but. I would need to give that much, much more thought, but that is an absolutely fascinating question, Joseph. If you guys have thoughts on that, then you can email me directly, pointnorthmedia at gmail.com, or you can go stop by the Point North Media forum, pointnorthmedia.com slash forum, from which I have been lamentably absent because it has been a busy, busy week here. So I'm afraid I am not at all caught up over on the forum, but I will make my my return to the forum, like uh, like Gandalf rescuing Faramir, or probably more like Faramir fleeing the shadow back into the uh, the relatively safe embrace of, uh, of Minister. That's probably going to be more like my homecoming. Oh, and Joseph, calling out something that i wanted to talk about right here at the end I pity even his slaves does oh excuse me that just moved um here we are i pity even his slaves joseph asks does gandalf mean only human slaves or orcs as well if orcs then that pretty much destroys our orcs lives are worthless theory um i'm not sure that it does I, I i would take that to mean in the absence of other information and with the assurance that professor tolkien thought very carefully about this I would take that to mean the human slaves under Sauron's dominion, right? I'm not sure that I would include the orcs in that, but that is not to say that Gandalf would welcome the additional suffering of orcs. And this is something I had a couple of conversations actually uh, via email about this uh, a few weeks ago when I talked about orcs and and what we are to make of the relentless slaughter of orcs in the pages of this book, um, and what we are to make of their their you know uh, their possession of Fea, their possession of spirit or soul, um, and, and whether or not they are real. Sapient creatures in the manner of hobbits and men and elves and kind of dwarves also, or they are something else, or they are they're corrupt or they are perverted. It doesn't really matter exactly the notion of orcs. One of the uh, exactly the nature I should say of orcs. One of the things that is most interesting in this wholesale slaughter is that there is no desire to see orcs suffer. There is no desire to torment or to torture orcs. We're not above it. We're willing to do it when it is necessary, but. All of this is to say that I think there may be a read that the slaying of orcs is merciful, even if they are just corrupted beings, right? Even if they are just just animated earth and slime, as some of the accounts that, that Tolkien gave suggest that they are, then slaying them is still, in part, at least a kindness. It is still a liberation from a worse fate, I suppose. But no, I take slaves in that reading to mean the men that have fallen under his dominion rather than... And you'll remember as well, of course, that, that we've talked about slaves before, right? That, that Sauron would take uh, even the hobbits as slaves and that he would take a, a perverse pleasure in taking the hobbits as slaves. That does seem to be his MO. He wants dominion. He wants domination over Middle-earth. He doesn't want to kill everyone. He doesn't want to annihilate life on the surface of Middle-earth. He just wants all life to work for him, to serve him in bondage and in slavery. That seems to be his his impulse here. So I think that my read of that would be that Gandalf is talking most specifically about the men, but also no, absolutely about the orcs. That that may be, as you suggest, uh, as you suggest, Joseph, an argument against the orcs are mindless automata you know that that argument that we made in order to protect ourselves from some of the worst implications of the reckless and relentless slaughtering of orcs as we move through guys that is going to do it i'm gonna to have to wrap up and go and uh, and sip some tea and soothe my throat i think i've talked a lot over the course of the last uh, 18 minutes uh, last 100 minutes or so actually uh it has been an absolute pleasure to have you with me i hope you will join me next week for as i say chapters for the rest of chapter four and all of chapter five and then the following week the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. We're going to have a huge discussion that week. I'm going to try to do that entire chapter in one session. That's going to be a lot. There may have to be some, some catch-up discussion the following week, but I will do the best that I can. Guys, thank you so, so much for listening. Thank you so much for your patience with last week's somewhat abbreviated session. I hope this has made up for it. I hope you all have a fantastic week. I will talk to you all again soon. Until then, fly, you fools!